Heavenly Father, would you fill us now with your Holy Spirit, that we may know the mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. You may be seated. You have no idea how badly I wanted to preach on this line from Amos, and I will bring baldness on every head. But we will skip over that today. A number of years ago, author, thinker, A.W. Tozer wrote this uh, wonderful quote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me say it again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Not too many years away from that, an Anglican bishop named J.B. Phillips, who's most well known for his translation of the New Testament, he wrote a book about all of our misconceptions of God, and he called his book, this is the title, Your God is Too Small. Your God is Too Small. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. In our epistle lesson today, Paul is worried that these false teachers are messing with the minds of the Colossians. He's worried that these false teachers are um, twisting what the Colossians think about God, that, that the Colossians are falling prey to this counterfeit version of Christianity, a counterfeit Jesus Christ. And, and the counterfeit went something like this. We don't know for sure, but something like this. They were being taught that Jesus of Nazareth can't possibly be God in the flesh. Why? Because the physical world is evil, and only the spiritual world is good and divine, and therefore worship should be given to spiritual powers, like we should worship angels and spirits and things of that sort. This was the counterfeit version, as best we can tell, that the Colossians were being taught. Paul's worried for his church. And so, to combat this counterfeit problem, by the way, have you heard, I I bet you have, how national security uh, personnel are trained to spot counterfeit money? They're trained to spot counterfeit bills by studying and learning the original, the true, the correct version of the bill, so that when they see a counterfeit money, piece of money, they know immediately that's fraud, that's fake. Paul wants the Colossians to study and learn and know the real Jesus Christ. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What do you think about Jesus Christ? How are we like the Colossians? How do we have perhaps a counterfeit version of Jesus? Paul's going to teach us three things from Colossians 1 about the real thing, the real Jesus. Let me give them to you all at once, and then we'll jump into the text. First, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Second, Jesus is the Lord of creation. And third, Jesus is the Lord of the new creation, the church. 
All right, here we go. First, let's ask, what does Paul teach them about the real Jesus? Look at verse 15. By the way, this is one of the most uh, dense passages in the whole New Testament for understanding who Jesus is. So put your thinking hats on, get your notebooks and pencils or pens out, get ready. We're going to dive in. I'm going to talk a lot faster than you're going to listen, all right? So here we go. Jesus is the image of God. Look at verse 15 right off the bat. Christ Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Okay, wait a minute. How can you have an image of something invisible? The word in the original in the Greek for image is icon. Oh, we know, we, we know that word as good Anglicans, right? From way back in our past, our Eastern Orthodox heritage, we know the word icon. The word icon in Greek not only represents uh, 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 depicts whatever it's talking about, like a JPEG, right, in our day and age, or some kind of an image, it also conveys the presence of that reality. This is, by the way, the whole theology of Eastern Orthodox icons. If you're wondering, I love it. It's deep. It's precious. It manifests the truth of the thing that it's depicting. So, Jesus doesn't just represent a JPEG of the invisible God. He is God. That's the word icon. Friends, let this sink in. Do you realize that if we were in the first century and we had our iPhones, we could… Did you get that? First century iPhones. We could take a picture of the physical human representation of the invisible God. Think about that. By the way, if you're here today and you're just exploring the Christian faith, let me encourage you, start right here. Like, who is Jesus? Just start there. He's the image of the invisible God. It's the first thing about the real Jesus. Second of all, Paul says he's also the Lord of creation. Look at verses um, 15 through 17. Paul calls him the firstborn of creation. Here's what you need to know about the word firstborn. You can kind of cross out the word born or the, the part of firstborn. Cross out born and just think first. That's what it means. Jesus is the head of creation, the source of creation, the leader of creation. In all of creation, he has a unique role. He is the preeminent one. In a word, he is the Lord. That's what firstborn means. Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch theologian, said it like this, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He is the Lord of creation, the firstborn. Now, why can Paul say that? This is fundamental, by the way, to all of Christian theology. I wish we had time to talk about the Nicene Creed and the uh, Arian heresy and, and all that stuff. I would get so excited, and, um, but it would be not, not good for our time. So, we'll skip that. But you need to know this. It's very important that we state Jesus was not created Remember, we, we say this in the Nicene Creed, don't we? Begotten, not created. How can Paul make the claim that he's the Lord of creation? 
he goes on, for in him, verse 16, all things were created. Now, wait a minute. I thought God the Father created all things. Right, but see, here's the point of Christian theology that's so mystifying and yet beautiful and essential, that Jesus Christ, before He became man, was with the Father in His pre-existent form before all time and space, before anything else existed, so that Paul can say, and others in the Scripture, that creation came through Jesus. So, isn't that wild? At first, it sounds almost um, mind-exploding until we remember Christmas time when we read these words from St. John. In the beginning was what? The Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and John says, all things came into being what? Through Him. Jesus Christ, before He became man, has been, was with the Father before all creation in some preexistent form. He's the Son of God. To say otherwise, to say there was a time when He was not, is what's called the Arian heresy. You can have fun with it on Google later today. So not only is He firstborn because He, through Jesus, came creation, look later in verse 17. He's also firstborn because Paul says, verse 17, in Him all things hold together. That is, they are sustained. All of creation rests upon Jesus' sustaining hand. If Jesus removes Himself from creation, all the molecules and the atoms, space, stars, people, everything ceases to exist the moment Jesus does not sustain it. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews says it in chapter 1, verse 3. Christ, he says, or she says, is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being, and He sustains all things by His powerful Word. So, from Christ came creation. Christ is in the middle of creation holding it up. He's the glue. And then Paul says this, he's also the firstborn because all things were created for Christ. That is to say, Jesus Christ is the end toward which all creation itself is moving. He's the first. He's the Lord. He's the source, the preeminent one of all creation. Paul was um, preaching a sermon to the Athenians, and he said this, from Christ and through Christ and to Christ are all things. So, why is Jesus first in creation? Why is He the Lord of creation, the real thing? Because creation came from Him, is sustained by Him, and is moving toward Him. Now, one more thing. We skipped over a few phrases at the, in the middle of verse 16, and there's a reason for that. Go back to verse 16. One more thing on Jesus as Lord of creation. Um, you'll notice Paul mentions by name some of the things, both seen and unseen, created in or sustained by and purpose for Christ. You see that? Look at verse 16. For in Christ all things in heaven and on earth were created things visible and invisible. Now, here come four things, whether thrones, number one, or dominions, number two, or rulers, number three, or what? Or powers. This is a subtle hint, we think, at what was being taught to the Colossians. 
that Jesus Christ, the man who walked amongst them in Nazareth, was just one of many powers or spirits or rulers. Yes, he was really important, but he was not God in the flesh. Paul says, no, 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 no. The real Jesus, what you need to understand, was before all rulers, all dominions, all powers, all thrones, in the heavenly places and beyond. From him came those powers. He sustains those powers, and those powers have their end in Jesus Christ. Man, I wish I could tell you about C.S. Lewis's book, uh, Paralandra, a, a, a sci-fi novel. Some of you perhaps have read it. It's a fascinating um, story about another world, another planet that doesn't have a fall and doesn't need Jesus to die on the cross. But you know what? Jesus is Lord there too. Um, think about it's, it's, this Area 51 meme stuff is really cracking me up on Twitter Um, Friends, you do realize that the Scriptures teach if there is another planet and there are other beings or whatever else, and this, this Scripture teaches it, that Jesus is Lord there too. Have you ever thought about that? I don't know without the Area 51 meme stuff that we would even get the pleasure of thinking of that. Jesus is Lord of creation. Here's the third thing Paul teaches. He's the image of God. He's the Lord of all creation, and he's the Lord of the new creation. Now, this is where it gets fun because you and I are a part of this. Paul says in verse 18 and following, he calls Jesus no longer the firstborn of creation, but the firstborn from what? You see that? Verse 18, firstborn from the from the dead. Let's flip that around and make it a positive. He's the firstborn of the resurrected ones, you see. He's the firstborn of the new creation. Who's that? He's the firstborn of the church. He's the Lord of the church. This is fascinating. How can Paul say that? How is he the firstborn of the resurrected? Well, you say, of course he resurrected. But did you catch he's the firstborn? That means there are more. There are little resurrections that will be following his resurrection. Friends, do you think of the church this way as a group of the first of the resurrected ones? Jesus, of whom is the first. We are the new creation on the face of the earth, and from us comes new creation. Everything around us is dead. But in here, in the messiness of our lives at the cathedral, in all of our hypocrisy, in our nature as beggars who have found bread, in this place is new creation that once it touches every corner of the earth, the new heavens and the new earth will be here. That is what the church is. That's what you are. Paul wants to make sure the Colossians get it, and so he's been zooming in from the highest heaven. He's Lord here, he's Lord here, he's Lord here, and then he says in verse 21, and you, you Colossians, you cathedralites, You were once estranged and hostile in mind, and he has now reconciled you so as to present you holy and blameless before him. At first, Paul calls Jesus the firstborn of creation. Why? Because creation comes through him, is through him, is held by him, and goes to him. He's the firstborn from the dead, the firstborn of the church, the Lord of the church. Why? Because he's reconciled all things to himself. Isn't it amazing to think that the powers out there in the world that seem to be against God 
and that work in us against God will be redeemed. Can you imagine what consumerism looks like redeemed? Can you imagine what sexuality looks like redeemed? This is one of the gifts of C.S. Lewis's book, by the way, Paralandra, is he, he sort of imagines this. So, this is what Paul teaches the Colossians. Jesus, the real thing, the image of God, the Lord of creation, the Lord of the new creation. Now let's ask, in what way are you and me, what way are we like the Colossians? How do we need to have a counterfeit check? First, we've got to identify our own Colossian problem. Like, I think that I think that we have some Gnostic ideas like the Colossians had among us, for sure. We could talk about that. But in 2019, in a time when most Americans identify as Christian nuns, not nuns, but nun church, no church, nuns, and Christian duns, like, I'm done with church, and ex-evangelicals, perhaps a better answer than maybe we have a Gnostic problem is that we have a cynicism problem. And it makes sense. We're cynical about God and cynical about Christianity in particular. A number of years ago, author Craig Gay wrote a book called The Way of the Modern World. The Way of the Modern World. And he says this, in our day, in our politics, in our economics, in our technology, it's possible for you and me, yes, even Christians, it's possible to live every day without a single acknowledgement of God. Right? It's true. And nothing goes wrong. Nothing goes wrong. We get our groceries. We get gas. Get our kids to school. Go to sleep. Check our iPhone. Haven't thought about God all day. Don't need to because in our modern world, everything works, is innovative, and the comforts just keep coming. Alexa, play, whatever. You know what uh, Craig Gay calls this? He calls it practical atheism practical atheist. He said, yeah, 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 you're, you're Christians, but, but in the practical world, you're atheists. Like, you, you believe as Christians, but you live as atheists. We recite the Nicene Creed with gusto. We believe and we say with our lips, with Paul, Jesus is Lord, but the meaning of these words is really lost on us because out in that world that's so comfortable, we really don't need a heavenly power like God. Here's the thing, though. If Craig Gay is right, I kind of think that he is. That would mean that you and I profess hope on Sunday right now. We say we have hope, but we actually live without it as practical atheists Monday through Saturday. It, pause and consider this. How sad. It's not just that Craig Gay is pointing his finger at us all and scolding us. He's saying, how sad, right? that only for a few moments every week you get to have a taste of hope. What if you could live with hope every day? What if you could live as practical Christians, <laughs> right? Incidentally, Paul finishes this passage by talking about hope. He quotes hope twice. First, he says, don't shift from the hope. And then he says this just jam-packed phrase in verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
Here's where we'll end. Friends, can you believe that Jesus Christ as Lord of creation and Lord of the church, who is reconciling all things to Himself, who was with the Father before anything else existed, is doing all of this miraculous work in your heart. It's inside of you. You take it to work with you. You are at home with it, with your kids. In your loneliest moment, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Like the resurrection of the cosmos is in your soul. And this is what Christians take out into the world, into the streets, into the neighborhoods of Orlando. We take Christ in you, the hope of glory. My hope today is not that we would just learn and know the real thing, Jesus Christ, so that we could tell the fake thing apart, but that we would love Jesus, that we would experience the hope of Jesus in us, and that we would take this hope out into the world and share it. Amen.